Way back in part one of our journey through the fall, Jonathan Fisher mentioned how much he loved the sleeve artwork on Grotesque. We were later contacted by a listener calling himself Whizbang Pow to say he was the proud owner of the original painting by Mark's sister, made at the exact dimensions of an LP sleeve and now hanging on his wall. We asked him to send us a photo, which he did, along with a bit of backstory on how he came to own it. He'd bought it 20 years ago from a user on a fall forum who'd found it in a disused office block. That owner's wife had eventually made him get rid of it, and the new owner has had many offers since for this important rock relic. We love stories like this, please do share them, and we'll happily pass them along to the other listeners. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and of course the Facebook group where it all started, facebook.com slash groups slash tempfans. Just search tempfans or temporary fandoms. As for the podcast, you've obviously already found it, but I'm compelled to mention that the Spotify version comes with the tunes we're talking about and is my favourite way to listen. You can find links to this on our host at Beat Rehab, that's beat.rehab slash tempfans, or at tempfans.com. Bolty and Vimto and Spangles were always crap, regardless of the look-back bores, sings Marky Smith on It's a Curse, which we'll be coming to in today's episode. He might just be right, although I do like a Bolty. Thankfully, Vimto and Spangles are not the topic of today's episode, and we hope not to bore you with our continuing backwards look through the records of the fall. Hello there, welcome to episode 17 of Temporary Fandoms. I have said that four times today, um, two because I screwed it up and one because we weren't recording for approximately half an hour. I'm Ewan. <laughs> I'm Nick. And we are knee deep in the fall. Joining us for this episode in our revolving fall-esque lineup, welcoming back Joey Von Hess, friend of the pod. Hey, Zoe. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Everyone's staring at me. Everyone's staring at me like I'm a monster because we were having a good old chat and I pointed out that I hadn't hit record. Um, also joining us for the first time is Joe Mitchell. Hey, Joe. Hey. Hello. And in this episode, you're going to hear Zoe talking about which album, Zoe? Uh, Extricate, Shift Work, and Code Selfish. Perfect. And Nick will be talking through The Infotainment Scan and Middle Class Revolt. Perfect. Um, Joe's not curating any of the albums on this episode, but he will be in the next one. Um, mainly because I've already said this a couple of times, so I'm skipping through relatively quickly. Um, join us in a bit. <laughs> Hi, I'm Zoe, and I'm here to talk to you about three albums by The Fall from the early 90s. First up, Extricate. Released in 1990 on Fontana, which is a subsidiary of Polygram, or Phonogram, as the holding company was also known. Yes, we're in major label territory, and it shows. But first, who's in and who's out? Marky Smith is in, of course. Martin Brahma is back. Yes, Martin of first lineup fame. Bricks is out. Craig Scanlon's on guitar, Steve Hanley's on bass, Marsha Schofield's on keys, and Simon Wollstonecroft is on drums. There's some session musicians on fiddle, flute and oboe, and the production is overseen by Craig Leon. Adrian Sherwood produces one track, as do Cold Cut, they produce a couple on this one. This is the first Post Bricks album. I don't know if it's worth mentioning that not only had Mark and Bricks divorced, but also that Mark's dad had died the year before. I guess in part it explains the feeling of melancholy defiance that hangs over this album. You might also say that this is the beginning of their Wazzy period. Wazzy is shorthand in our temporary fandoms group for anything that has a slightly indie dance crossover tinge, anything baggy from that 90s period. Telephone thing is well Wazzy. Sing Harpy opens up the whole shebang. It's another one of Mark's diss songs and it's catchy as hell. Bill is Dead is a full classic. Many people love this one. It made number one in John Peel's Festive 50 that year. Well, of course it did, right? But actually, that was the only time they did. There's a couple of covers um, of The Monks, now that's a cult band, and The Searchers, not so much. If you bought the CD version, as I did, you got a few extra tracks as well. I would say that this is their most conventional album in a sense, but perhaps also one of their most coherent. If you like the shonky punky era, then this might not be for you. But if you want a full album that's sleek, well-crafted and accessible, 
then you might just fall in love with this one, as I did, what, 31 years ago now. I have to say, the two tracks that really stand out for me are Chicago Now and The Littlest Rebel. I'll listen to these songs till the day I die. They're absolutely quintessential four songs, and I've also selected them for the Spotify playlist. And now on to 1991 and Shift Work, which is also on Fontana. I'm just warning you now that this album and the next has more of an electronic influence due to the input of Dave Bush, who was a roadie turned band member. But to be fair to Marky Smith, he had already worked with Coldcut and Mouse on Mars as early as 1989, before we start talking about bandwagons. This bandwagon is definitely on a detour. The first time I heard this, I've got to admit, I was put off by the opening track, so what about it? But I did persevere, and you should too, if only to discover the gem, you haven't found it yet. While I was doing research for this podcast, I went back to look at what I said about this album when I heard it for the first time in the Facebook group a few years ago. I'd say my position hasn't changed. Okay, so it doesn't really hang together as an album, but almost any fall song is 80% more interesting than whatever else was going on at that time. I think it would be fair to say that a lot of fall fans don't rate this album at all. In fact, someone in the group referred to it as shit work. That was you, Max Williams. And a lot of people say it runs out of steam at the end, and I'd have to concur. I'm probably one of the only people on the planet who doesn't rate Primal Scream's Screamadelica, and I would actually honestly rather listen to this than that. But it's hard to be objective about the form. It's almost like the usual criteria doesn't apply. It's hard to get consensus, as one person's excellent fall album is another person's trash. I think the thing we need to ask is, do I like it? So do you? Do you like it? As for lineup, no big changes yet. Of course, we have Dave Bush with his electronics and the production duties are shared by Craig Leon, Robert Gordon and Grant Showbiz. I know that Edinburgh Man is a fave from this album, but it's not for me. I'd say there are highs and lows on this one. And to illustrate this, I've chosen You Haven't Found It Yet as my high and a lot of wind as the low for the playlist. I actually like a lot of wind, but I think I might be on my own for this one. So, on to our third fall album of the 90s, and we're only in 1992, prolific as fuck. This one also on Fontana. We're still in the same wazzy jurisdiction as shift work, but Code Selfish does sound more consistent. Could it be that they've had time to work out how to fuse Dave Bush's electronics with the formidable rhythm section of Steve and Cy? The Fall have always been about experimentation. I guess it's up to you to decide if this particular undertaking is successful or not. Once again, we open up with a diss track. This one is supposedly about their ex-manager, Trevor Long, who Marky e. Smith unsuccessfully sued. I particularly enjoy his vocal affectations on this album, but to be honest, there's nothing really great, except for maybe time enough at last, but nothing really bad either. The single free range from this album is The Fall's only top 40 single that was an original song. Any higher chartings were cover versions. Talk of the Charts is relevant to this era of the fall because they were on a major label and they were seeking commercial success. They were surrounded by other bands from Manchester who were doing very well, why not them? It seems like a bit of an old-fashioned concept now, but these were the days where you could pay off your mortgage on the back of a hit single or two. The lineup for this one is, you could say, stripped back. That's because Martin and Marsha were fired in the middle of the Australian tour to promote Extricate with only a couple of weeks left to go. Mark sacked them and sent them home. It said it was because they were romantically involved and Mark thought it was unprofessional, <clears throat> bricks. But when asked why, he cited musical differences. The tracks I'd like to highlight on this album and the ones I've chosen for the playlist are Time Enough At Last, which is a lovely little melancholy indie number, and Two Face. If I'm really honest, I'm not a fan of the harsher electronic sound on this album, but don't let me put you off. I also like Gentleman's Agreement, but I realise that these three tracks are more restrained and don't represent the main thrust of Code Selfish. There's only one thing for it, you're just going to have to go and listen to the whole album.
I do not like your tone. It has an ephemeral, whinging aspect. I'm back! Have you missed me? With regards to my own fall fandom, this is more or less where I came in. 1992's Code Selfish was the first fall album I heard and fell in love with. The infotainment scam was the first that I anticipated and bought on release. So this fidgety semi-electronic incarnation of the band is what I was used to, even if it may have been baffling to older fans of the band who missed their loping rockabilly peculiarity. Rest assured, however, it is not the peculiarity that's gone, and Scanlon and Hanley remain as chief engineers of the full sound. Interesting things are happening with the percussion, too, with Cy Wollstonecroft on the one hand and keyboardist Dave Bush bringing an element of programming to the mix. It's the same lineup, in fact, as Code Selfish, and the band seem to be settling into this new direction. Not exactly dancey, but acknowledging the changes happening in British alternative music, as the guitar bands in whose thrall we had been for decades gave way to music designed for different spaces. It was the fall's highest charting album, and for a moment, it seemed that if the band were going to go mainstream, this was the moment. Fat chance. Despite all the books written about the fall, there are few that give as much insight into the recording process as Steve Hanley's, which is why I return to it again and again. It seems that the band would work out tunes in Marquis e. Smith's absence, and then he would show up with his carrier bag of lyrics and bend their riffs to his caustic diatribes and hazy but evocative storytelling. Increasingly, however, Hanley felt that Smith was making it up as he went along, and worse, there seemed to be barely concealed barbs directed specifically at him. After enduring Smith for so long, you can forgive him for being a little paranoid. And every day it's my pleasure to meet, Smith sings, the great league of bold-headed men. The increasingly middle-aged band had grounds to fear Mark was taking a swipe at them. But it's not as though Smith was any younger. The cover tracks on this album stand out in particular, especially because they were such off-kilter choices. Sister Sledge's disco classic Lost in Music and the strangely maudlin I'm Going to Spain by Steve Brent, where we get to hear Mark sing about the Elton John tapes he was given for the move. If there's a theme to the album, it's Mark's contempt for nostalgia, and yet on Going to Spain, there's a melancholy that feels genuine. On Glam Racket and Pass Gone Mad, however, he takes no prisoners. Serial killers were always a bore in my book, along with Spangles and Soccer Books. It's cantankerous, but it's also playful, and this is an aspect of Smith's curmudgeonly persona that is often overlooked. The Infotainment Scan is a fun album, and in 1993 I was not disappointed. If you're looking for the sound of the downtrodden, the prejudiced, the rotten, grumbling voice of the gutter, only Mark Smith can commit it to record. That's what Ian McCann wrote in The NME when reviewing 1994's Middle Class Revolt. At the time of its release, I was a second-year student at the University of Warwick, and thanks to older friends there, I'd worked pretty hard filling in the gaps in my relatively newly acquired fall fandom. And then here comes Marky e. Smith with Hey Student, and it seems that I'm the target. When I'm walking down the street, it's always you I seem to meet. Long hair down and sneakers on your feet. Fuck you, Mark. I was definitely wearing Doc Martens in 1994 and a donkey jacket I'd bought from a building suppliers in Hull because somehow that made me an authentically working class son of a social worker studying film at a campus university. Yeah. The swipes were almost certainly justified, as you were, Mark. Carl Burns is back in the band again, but funky Cy Wollstonecroft also remains, so back with double drummers. My guess is that Mark liked having Carl in the band, but never felt he could rely on him sufficiently to sack the other drummer. And I bang on about this a lot, but I still feel it's worth mentioning that even here, on the 16th record, you're not listening to a hugely different set of musicians to way back in 1980. Many people have come and gone, but Smith, Hanley, Scanlon and Burns are your John Paul, George and Ringo of the fall. And yet journalists still feel they need to make cracks about changes in the lineup. Lyrically, it's a deceptively coherent album, and you'd be forgiven for thinking you might even know what the songs are about. The aforementioned Hey Student is a spirited rocker that's hard not to enjoy, even if you're still smarting from the assault. On the opening track, Fifteen Ways, it sounds like Smith is riffing off the cover of a copy of Cosmopolitan. They're perhaps pulling away from the electronic loops that had characterised their early 90s sound, but there are still plenty of tunes in that wistful mode, like Reckoning and You're Not Up To Much, both of which feel like they may be reflecting on his lost relationship with Bricks. Whilst I allow that I could be projecting that, it's hard not to hear 
and you're sleeping with some hippie halfwit who thinks he's Mr. Mark Smith. And not think of violinist Nigel Kennedy, with whom Bricks was in a relationship at the time. Enough gossip though, let's talk about football. I'd always assumed that the person in conversation with John Peel on the symbol of Mordgar was Mark E. Smith himself, but it turns out that it is in fact none other than Craig Scanlon who gets to utter the immortal line, well the true Mancunian is the Man City fan I find. There's a typically odd assortment of covers too, from Henry Cow's War to the Groundhog's Junkman, with kazoos. Album closer Shut Up, however, is firmly back in the fall's comfort zone, covering the monks neither for the first nor the last time. It seemed like a decent enough album, but it charted much lower than Infotainment Scan. And imagine Steve Hanley's horror, with his long-cherished but never-realised dream of appearing on top of the pops, when Marky e. Smith turned up on the show singing I Want You with the Inspiral Carpets which reached number 18 in the UK. Hello there, welcome back to Temporary Fandoms. Again, um, still with us in the pod, myself and Nick, we've got Zoe. Hey, Zoe. Hiya. And we've got Joe. Hey, Joe. Hello. And you have been listening to the early stages of the 90s fall. So in the last pod... Um, Bricks left at the end of the 80s. She brought a, a different sound to the late 80s fall. And we are coming in straight away with Sing Harpy. Zoe, is this a yes. not too subtle reference to the breakup, do you think? Well, of course it is. I, I mean, Marky Smith, I think, is one of those artists who always says what's on his mind. So it would be... It would, you know, it would be silly to think that this wouldn't come through on this album. It is the album that they made after Bricks left or divorced him. And also his dad died the year before. So I would say that's why lyrically you might get a hint of these kind of things. I mean, I remember reading an interview with him at the time, basically sort of like styling it out, going, oh, yeah, she's gone off with Nigel Kennedy. He can have her. She's a nightmare, you know, that kind of thing. But then probably the truth comes mm. out via the music which is you know that life is a little bit more complex than that yeah yeah there's definitely some introspective moments on the album yeah you can sort of see into his soul and how he really feels is that something that he does throughout his career i mean there are some songs that are obviously uh, narrative driven uh, on in the fourth canon and are there more moments of Soul searching. It's something we, we touched. Unfiltered Marky Smith. I think we touched on it in the last episode. The idea that he claimed that he was always writing in character and that his songs were mm. about himself. And yet you've got albums like this where most of the album feels autobiographical. Uh, yeah. And any claim that he's not writing about himself sounds like, frankly, bullshit. I, I think there's moments, isn't there, where the mask suddenly slips. And it's like on Billy's Dead on this record where he starts singing about him having crow's feet that he went to a bar and just got too pissed the night before. Um, and those moments, especially on the 90s fall albums, um, I mean, on I think it's shift work, isn't it, with Edinburgh Man, that's different for Mark, really. And he does, a, a, later on, when I talk about um, one of my records, he does a love letter, which is just, you wouldn't expect it from Mark, but there it is. Yeah. But you, can, you can trace that stuff back all the way to This Nation's Saving Grace. Like on the, um, I think it's yeah the last track on that. We uh, one, the one I was saying with the, with the stupid title, but actually has a really poignant chorus. You know, every day we've got to die some that one. So you know that had been there for some time. So this is this is nineteen nineties extra K. Um, some say it's the Bricks breakup album. Yeah, it's the Bricks breakup album. They're on the major labels. Fontana is it Zoe now? Yeah, I think Fontana is like a, a sort of an offshoot of the 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 bigger conglomerate but I guess the the most important thing is that they had lots of resources so they had like a good studio they had they could pretty much do what they wanted they had time they could get session musicians in they had money so they could spend and they money got flutes. And time they got flutes in. they got flute <laughs> you go on about the flute but I love the oboe the oboe is what gets it for me the oboe is nice anyway so I think they were chasing a hit I think they yeah, really were yeah, definitely according to Steve Hanley right yeah I mean they, that's, they wanted to that's what the of... title of the book he wrote is about like, the big midweek was basically about uh, the idea that whenever they release a single all the full fans would go out and buy it straight away 
and they'd have really, really good initial results. So it would always look like this was the one. And then by the weekend, when the, re- the charts were released, they'd just dropped out of the charts again. So they never quite had that hit, despite this really big yeah. initial sales they got every single time they released a single in the 80s. Well, even going back to, uh, Joe mentioned Billy's, Billy's Dead, but this was the first time they actually topped the John Peel Festive 50. Yeah, that was a surprise. Which that, when I heard is that. odd, considering they've been in it yeah. throughout. Yeah. I, I, think af- I think when John Peel died and they continued with the Festive 50 a little bit, I think they there was a sort of another full track they got in maybe. But yeah, drawing John Peel. Um, and that, that was a track that, when I mean, the sound has changed for me, um, yeah. this is the sound that there's a bit of baggy, there's a bit of wazzy. Um, obviously, that's happening at the time around them. The bill is dead. Sounds like the Sundays with this jangly, jangly, happy Sunday Sunday afternoon pop. Um, yeah, I think actually with Bill is dead, I think that the band were trying to do a Smith's piss take, and then uh, Marky Smith came along and and was going to do something disparaging possibly, but then he realised it was quite a good tune, and so he did something a bit more uh, I don't know poignant melancholy and that really comes across and I think he's quite defiant he's always defiant isn't he even when yeah, he's being yeah. really introspective he's like fuck you yeah, yeah and 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 that comes out in the lyrics these are the greatest times of my life when they're clearly not <laughs> you know so yeah 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 but again that feels like a callback is it to the classical <laughs> I've never felt better in my life you've kind of got that refrain and um, one of the things I think I loved about the fall at that time you know because um, I couldn't get to the fall until a bit later, but this would have been one of the first albums I heard. It was that kind of uh, really beautiful melancholy that they do so well around this period where you've got songs where, you know, he's singing about being happy where he clearly isn't. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah. I, mean, I think, yeah. I, and, you, and you you mentioned the word songs as well. Is this, this and moving up, when we do move on to the next album, this is when songs start properly turning up, you know, um, song structures, bridges, choruses, there's still some repetition, but the driving post-punk repeat, 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 repeat for four minutes does seem to change a little bit, right? A little bit. There's still a bit of everything in there. You've got your repetition, repetition, repetition. You've got your covers. Um, then you've got the odd singles, like from Metricate, you've got Telephone Thing, which really digs into the Manchester scene at the time. You get more of a sort of... I want to say mixed bag, but it's better than that, really. And like you say, the song's coming through. Well, maybe this is also the time when The Fall started doing a lot more covers. You know, earlier on, the covers weren't a part of The Fall, and yet from here on in, pretty much every album has got a cover on it, if not several. There's there's one on every album, I think, from Ben Sinister to The Unutterable. Really? Yeah. Well, on this, I mean, I didn't know for years that Popcorn Double Feature was a Fall song. Sorry, was not a Fall song, I should say. It was uh, by the Sturges. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's a great tradition, particularly with alternative indie rock, indie alternative rock, however you want to define bands, um, of doing cover versions and bringing them to a, a non-mainstream sort of thing. Like, I don't know, I'm going to reference other early 90s bands at the time, Carter, The Unstoppable Sex Machine. Every single song that came out, there was a, a cover on the B-side and they went from Pet Shop Boys to Shampoo. We're going going through their canon. Um, okay, we've we've mentioned it already, so let's move on to to shift work. We've got 1990, 1991. Um, again, this is the wazziest, baggiest early nineties album cover you're ever going to see. Um, Nick, it's by who's that friend? It's uh, by Pascal Legras, who would do quite a few fall covers. So I think this is his first one. But he also did the cover for uh, Code Selfish and I think a couple of others later on. And this is the album that for this this got to about number seventeen in the chart album charts, the highest since maybe the mid eighties. Zoe, is this a is this a, a, a tour de force for them or are they? I mean, what's happening with them at the moment? Okay, well, I I like this album. Um, I know a lot of people really don't like it, and I think the reason why I like it is because it is quite varied. It isn't just all like sometimes the fall get into this thing where they. They go, right, we're going to do an album and then it's all going to sound like this. Um, and then there's a couple of tracks, but overall there's there's a certain vibe. And that comes in later in the 90s, I think, where there's a couple of albums I almost find are a little bit indistinguishable from each other. But with this one, I feel like there's lots of variety there and I really like it. But I can really understand why people don't. 
because you don't really know what you're getting. You'll get two tracks and you'll think, oh, okay, it's this version of the four. And then two songs later, you go, oh, okay, they're doing this now. But that's what I like about it. So it just depends. Um, what What is this version of the four? Has this version of the four become a thing yet? Well, well wait, you've touched I mean, the lineup is still basically the same. But even sound-wise, I mean... There are definitely certain. There's eight. There's early eighties four. That sounds like early eighties. There's bricks period four. Has this Fontana three albums? Is this a period? Is there a sound that only belongs to this? It's definitely very nineties. It's got that sound over those three records. Yeah. Lineup slightly different because Brammer's gone. Yeah. And Schofield's been sacked. It's more people coming and going, but you've still got the same core. Hmm. Mm. Yeah. You still got. Why did Brammer leave? Brammer was back for what? Yeah, so Brammer was back for he extricate. Was, he was shagging. Fired along with Marsha Schofield. Yeah, basically. Um, <laughs> so in the fall, you're only allowed to have a relationship with Marky e. Smith. Um, so anyone else in the band having relationships with each other, that was out. So how Scanlon and Hanley kept their relationship a secret all those years, I don't know. This is a little cult. <laughs> yeah, very much you know, so. I think so. I mean, it's I, quite I, weird, I, isn't it? I mean, I guess he he does. I mean, he does like his shadow casts across the group. I mean, obviously, he's he's the only one who's who, from start to finish of the Fool's career. But there is an element of idol worship, idolatry, cult worship. Um, why do people join a band that they then write about being a horrible yet beautiful experience? Um, what is it he had to get to inspire people to do this? I mean, I'd have walked away, but I, you know, I, I'm bit spiky like that <laughs> Zoe, well, he's, when, he's what, a, would... well I think he's a really strong leader it's like when someone has such confidence and such like belief in themselves and their talent that's a really attractive thing I mean I wasn't going to talk about this but actually I was in a band with somebody who was a bit like this and when I read Steve Hanley's uh, memoir it was really emotional because it's like I know this I've lived this obviously I'm not comparing myself in any way to like a member of the four it's my shitty you know like garage band or whatever but I know what it's like to be in a band with someone like that and like you become invested in the music and especially if you do some great gigs you you don't want to give that up because you're in a in a band with a twat right it becomes like a yeah a, <laughs> it becomes that's like a great a name for an autobiography <laughs> <laughs> and I, I and what's really interesting is like I've actually had to sing songs that that person has written about me like you know how Marky e. Smith used to like yeah. write yeah. diss tracks and then the people would have to actually play them or sing backing vocals I've I've lived that so it was very affecting to me and I think that's one of the reasons why with the fall like I love them I but I love them from standing right back my arms folded kind of admiring them but I don't want to nestle up close to them do you know what I mean like they scare me a little Marky Smith scares me a little bit and yeah but I think that's a very potent combination and for some people like they're well up for it you know I think that scary thing is I I think most of us at some point have known a Marky Smith type Mm. Um, I, I, I know I've got a Mark E. Smith type from my old circle of friends in Wolverhampton and I still love him to pieces, but there's no way I could possibly explain him to anybody else. Um, he's bitter and he's a bit of a bully, but he's funny and he's charming. And, you know, there's, there is always that sort of character. And uh, Mark e. Smith is that, is the sort of guy that would, I don't know, turn on me at eight o'clock in the morning and I've popped into Weatherspoons for breakfast. <laughs> I don't do that often, but I've done that. And, there's a guy, <laughs> and, and, there's, and there's some guy who's sitting there who just spots me and decides that I'm the one who's going to, he's going to unleash shit on. Yeah. It's not as scary as you might think really. I think what it is, is that there's a real charisma about a personality like that who just, says and does what they want like we all want to be like that don't we so if you're kind of in a band with someone like that even if your your personality is not that you kind of get a piece of that and so I can understand why people put up with it for so long but also I mean if you look at the fandom that's also very culty it's not just the people within the band it's the people who go to see the band who buy their records so we are kind of dealing with a, a cultish type thing which you know is is very attractive we're also we're also in a period where the singles are very very strong in the early 90s we've had telephone thing on extricate 
And the single that went with um, Shift Work was High Tension Line. Excellent, really, really good songs. And because they're still putting them out, then why not be on board? Very successful. I think I don't think that's it. I think there is there is a thing of of being with a band. I mean, I I, I would I storm off. I'm a flouncer. I'd have stormed off if this was me. But I, this for some reason this is now reminding me. Um, there was a band uh, around in a certain part of the West Midlands, early nineties, uh, a sort of soul revival band. And I had a friend who was working for them at the time. And I remember him saying that one of them had been having an affair with the other lead singers. Uh, wife or girlfriend, yet they were staying in the band. They were staying in the band. And it all came to head one day. We goes, I'm changing the names mainly because I can't remember them. Uh, Dave, why don't you take it to the bridge? And why don't you fuck off? And then just, <laughs> <laughs> and then just stormed off. And, then, and that was that. I mean, there has to be a breaking point at some point. Yeah. Um, okay, going back to what was happening around them at the time, uh, we've got Idiot Joy Showland. We've got a track deriding and and being sarcastic about uh, the up-and-coming bands uh, in Manchester at the time, yet the musicians in the falls seem to be bringing in and adapting the sounds that were prevalent of the time. Was this a sort of Marky Smith diss track, or was he sort of, I guess they were saying America, busting the balls of the the new young people on on, on the block? Anybody. <laughs> Was was is there an irony of the band bringing in these sounds while he's simultaneously dissing the bands there's, that there's, are doing? There's these definitely sounds? some irony there, but then he always did that, though. He always did yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, as far as Marky e. Smith was concerned, everybody was ripping him off. That was always his thing. Yeah. And, okay. And- um. Okay. So on this album, we we still got lots of jangly guitars. It's wazzy. It there's a lot of wah wah. Oh, if you're a new listener and you're going, what's wazzy? Uh, go back to Can. We discussed Waz a little bit. Um, but Wazzy is very early 90s. Not quite baggy, but it's like pornography. I can't dis- I can't tell you what it is, but I know it when I hear it. Um, when you so, hear it. <laughs> yeah. Sort of squelchy <laughs> sound. I am going to edit that out. Oh, come um, on. So. I will say, I will say that I think Edinburgh Man on this album does sound a little bit phoned in. Really? Some people hold it up as a yeah, great track. Some people love it. For me, yeah, some people love, I it. love it. Yeah, some people I really love it. love it. Yeah, yeah, it's very introspective. I don't. It's. I mean, this. I think this is the first full album I heard that had tracks I actively disliked on it. Um, so I like Shift Work as a whole, but um, talk a lot, oh, talk really? a lot of wind. I don't really like. It's the first one where I know the, the lyrics are just him railing at the TV. And, you know, later on, you've got a lot of that where he's just kind of, it's Marky e. Smith watching TV <laughs> and just shouting at the television program. Oh, you're thinking, he... really? You're better than this, Mark. Come on. He's the old man who yells at the clouds. Nick, he's always done that. Do you know what? There was this time in the in the 90s where I was living in Australia and I was kind of unemployed for a period. <clears throat> and so I was watching a lot of TV and I was watching a Flintstones episode and the whole of Deadbeat Descendants is based on a Flintstones episode. <laughs> so I was, I was watching this episode, going, "Oh my god, this is this is the lyrics are all about dead. That's Deadbeat Deadbeat Descendants." And there's even a bit where like someone shouts out, "Come back here, you Deadbeat Descendants!" Really? And I was like, "Oh my god!" So that's what Marky Smith has done <laughs> well, a lot. Yeah, yeah. It's just song... really obscure. Yeah, but it's... is that the song where Deadbeat he goes Descendants? Is that the song where the chorus is Yabba Dabba Doo Wah? Is it that one? <laughs> But it's like his, uh, uh, his obsession <laughs> with terrible, terrible joke. It's like his obsession with the it Twilight Zone. Though. There's so many, so many fall traps yeah. that are named after Twilight Zone episodes, like "Kick the Can," "What You Need," and um, "Time Enough at Last." It's just what he's watching on TV at the time. And when you get to yeah, levitate, yeah, sometimes right. it's more subtle. <laughs> I guess that's the thing. It's, yeah, when it's just shouting at the TV weatherman. You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nah. Buy one, one get, buy one, get one free was a great track. One song later <laughs> on where he's, he's talking about, oh, there's there's a new um, show coming out from the director of the X Files. Yeah, yeah, that's much later though, isn't it? I mean, yeah. And also on this one, yeah. book, book of, would you put that in a song? Oh, book of Lies, <laughs> I wasn't a fan of either, and I think that's partly down to the Kenny Brady vocal on it. Um, I'm not a fan of full songs that have different vocalists on. What? That's not strictly true. When it's male vocalists, because I'm fine with Bricks, I'm fine with Elaney, but uh, I wasn't really a fan of the, um, who's the guy, Gavin Friday on uh, 
wonderful and frightening world. Having Friday, yeah. Oh, yeah, um, and then on on shift work, I feel got, exactly um, the same. You got Kevin Brady singing songs, and, and he's a bit of you that thinks, "No, piss off! I'm here for Marky Smith." And yet, when it's a female vocalist, I'm fine. Uh, yeah. so there's probably some Cal stuff Burns I need to unpick well. there. Yes, <laughs> there's a lot to unpick. Yeah, mm. uh, I'm going to move us on a little bit. Um, we've gone, well, we, we, we've we've gone through the early '90s. The Fall have obviously been touched by the sounds around them, but also Marky Smith probably claiming that he invented the sounds around them. Um, now I think we've got a massive change forward a little bit with, with Dave Bush joins the band for Code Selfish and we've got synths and keyboards and electronica suddenly coming in more than they ever were before. Um, Zoe, what influence would you think um, would you say that Dave Bush has the biggest influence on the band sound since, say, Bricks? Well, there's definitely influence, but I was just going to say, you and Darling were still only in the early 90s. That's how, like, how much output they have. We're only in 92. Yeah. Yeah, it's right? one a year. So we're still in the early 90s. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We're still here. We're still in the early 90s. And, I mean, I think this is way more uh, influenced by the Manchester scene that you were talking about. But this is always going on. This has been going on behind them anyway since what 89 so it does make sense that it would come through in a way but they're not doing it in the same way that the other sort of Manchester artists are doing it so it's always going to be it's always going to sound different because you've got Marky Smith all over the top of it this album is I think it's better than shift work because it's got a more coherent sound it like it sounds like an album but I'm one of those people that doesn't really like that 90s wazzy sound I mean, I like some of it, but I, I don't want to hear a whole album of it from the fall. And whenever they go back to that melancholy guitar-y stuff, that's where I go, oh, I like that. So I'm a bit, you know, Would you say a that bit that, vanilla. I mean, was it? Is it Free Range? For me, Free Range was the song that sounds like 80s fall, but somebody's just bought them new instruments and they're trying to, and, and they're just redoing 80s fall with new stuff. It's one of my favourites, definitely yeah. Free Range. Well, I just want to say, this, this, was, this was the very first fall album I heard. And so I, I love it, but I think a lot of people have a soft spot for their first Fall album. And I've always found that that despite how close I am to this album, I never really hear people talking about Code Selfish very much, either as a favourite or as a not favourite. It's just there. And uh, I'd, I'd say I'd say there's two influences on this album, really. Techno music and the influence of Cold Cut, who collaborated with The Fall. That's true. Was that around the same time as this? Mm, yeah. There definitely is the techno-y influence, even if it's not the sort of hardcore clubbing techno yeah uh maybe the sort of techno light of what i don't know there, there was a little bit that sounded like the utah saints with marky e. smith singing over the top definitely of it, and I just it's a harsh sound i'd buy that <laughs> <laughs> oh you'd you'd buy anything from with a marky e. smith on it <laughs> yeah i can't argue with that unfortunately <laughs> um covers what are the covers i mean there's a hank williams yeah, just, one right just waiting mm-hmm. hank williams hank williams, just waiting yeah. yeah that's the only one actually yeah mm. yeah um, was this one? How was this one received? I think it. I mean, it got good reviews in the music press. I think at the time, um, like I say, it was it was where I came in, and I think at that time the four were kind of. I don't know if you could ever describe them as indie darlings, but um, you know they they were on a lot of enemy covers and melody making. Yeah, covers. absolutely. You know, am I right in thinking that Free Range was their only top forty single to be self penned at this point? Because all the other ones are things like Mister Pharmacist. Yeah. Covers. Victoria. That sounds yeah. plausible. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. It goes to my house. Yeah. Oh, okay. If we ever have a, a fall based pub quiz, can we have that question? That's a real it's pub a good quiz fact, question. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is <laughs> um if anyone's got nothing any, has anybody got anything more to say about code selfish? Before we... I think um, well, Dave, okay. I just want to <laughs> no. sorry. I just want to mention time Dave enough Bush. at last is good. It's another Twilight Zone one. Yeah, that's it? my. But I like that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's the one I pick for the playlist because I like that. I like it when he goes a bit, you know, like melancholy and mm. and writes songs Wistful about Mark. the telly. I love that. Yeah, wistful Mark. Birmingham School of Business School. But you've also got that's you've also one. you've also got Crew Filth. <laughs> Which is uh, one of those kind of awful fall filler tracks where it's just them messing about. I guess sometimes works, but Crew Filth is probably not one of those. Okay. They get more um, common towards the end of the nineties, though. Definitely, uh, you get some albums. The, the whole album sounds a bit like that. <laughs> <laughs> 
God, we're st- we are. St- I keep, you, I'm going back to what Zoe just said. We're still in 1992. I know. I know. You, yeah. Are you, you going to make it? Album? <laughs> <laughs> it's great, well, isn't let's it? Let's see. <laughs> well, let's fly forward. Let's fly forward a whole year to 1993 with the infotainment scan. Um, first things first, this has possibly one of the great cover versions of all time. Um, I'm not talking about the Lee Perry one. Obviously, I'm talking about Lost in Music. Lost in Music is, this version it, of Lost in Music is brilliant. It's great because it's it's so unexpected of the fall. You know, all their other covers are by The Monks, Groundhogs, basically like Van de Graaff Generator, things that Mark listened to in the 70s. And all of a sudden you've got Sister Sledge and it's brilliant. I, know, I mean, I mean, I love, although there's a lot of great, Fall garage covers, but when they do something totally off the wall, and they're kind of all three covers on this album are kind of quite mm-hmm. unpredictable because it's going to Spain yeah. as well. Uh, yes, performed on New Faces in 1976. I think he was taking the piss with that one a little bit, but it works. Yeah, but I, it works. It totally works. Um, okay, so obligatory lineup question <laughs> who's in, who's out? I think this is the same as Code Selfish. Um, yeah, you still have Hanley, it is, yeah. Scanlon. Wollstonecroft and Dave Bush, yeah, same lineup. Okay, and did it? Was there any change, or was it more of the same progression-wise? I mean, when you're releasing an album a year, I mean, it goes okay. Obviously, people used to do it all the time. The Beatles would release one every Friday, um, but now we're in a world where Radiohead will release something every seven years, uh, and there's big waits. When you're releasing an album a year, is it just here's some more of the same I don't know. for a few albums? I, I don't know in terms of how it performed, um, but there, I think there were some potentially big singles on here, like Glamour Racket. Um, this felt yeah. like a more commercial album than Code Selfish, in a way. That's the one uh, that... And uh, also, was this not one of the first ones? Was this released on Matador in the US? So it kind of started to get them a little bit more traction over there. I think this was the most successful fall album. You know, it got to number nine in the charts at uh, Infotainment Scan. I think uh, Infotainment Scan was a more uh, commercial-sounding record than Code Selfish because uh, apart from the covers that we've already talked about, you had big tracks like Glam Racket, which is widely perceived as a suede diss song, although Marky Smith denied it. I don't think his denials ever really meant much. Um, but didn't Steve Hanley say that he thought it was about him or someone in the did. band? He, yeah, he did. Well, I think I think there was a lot of paranoia in the band by that point, and Steve Hanley mm. felt that quite a lot of the. I think it, the one that specifically bothered uh, Steve Hanley was the uh, the League of Bold Headed Gentlemen. I can't think which why. Is, which is also on the. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. League of Bald Headed Gentlemen just sounds like uh, any kind of crowd that went to see the fall in the last ten years, and yeah, pretty much. In that. <laughs> um, was Marky Smith just trolling everybody around him and everybody who bought his records and everybody who oh absolutely absolutely yeah. but I think if you were in the band once you started to get diss tracks about you you'd probably be worried that your days were numbered yes. yeah that you might be on because, the way out. because that, there was a history of that of him sort of dissing members of the band and then them not being unless the they were being the paranoia men in the cheap shit room well yeah exactly <laughs> so it was basically so basically, Marky Smith's um, strategy to getting people from the band was like some 18-year-old teenage boy who sort of starts being a bit rude to his girlfriend, hoping she'll break up with him rather than actually having the balls to do it himself. I don't know. I don't think it was like that. I don't think he really wanted Hanley and Scanlon to leave. I think they just reached a breaking point eventually. Um, you know... I think he would just he just liked to needle people, and eventually, for some people, got too much. The only reason Scanlon and Hanley were in the band so long, I think, is because they were, they kept their heads down and got on with the job, and they liked having the job, so they just put up with it. He regretted, didn't he, when he sacked Scanlon? Scanlon, yeah, he did. But we're getting we're getting getting ahead of ourselves there. We are again. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> calm down, Joe. Calm down. But also, isn't isn't it isn't it a bit like that James Brown thing when you've got like a really like a tyrannical uh maestro that pushes you on to like bigger and better things wasn't didn't he kind of take that role on though with the musicians even though he couldn't play anything himself he would yeah. be like it's got to be better you're shit you're shit and that kind yes. of that energy of like telling people that you know you've got to do better and, and keeping everyone on their toes because he could get sacked mm. That that does something yeah, to the music and to the sound. I mean, also, but it also creates a, an atmosphere of chaos, which probably will explode in a couple of years, right? I wonder yeah. if anyone ever told him that he was shit on the violin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no. Uh, <laughs> or the you, kazoo. 
I think there's some comments Would where uh, Steve Hanley mentions about like the, the fear when he got his violin out in the studio. They'd be like, "Oh no!" Um, oh, I wouldn't tell. I wouldn't tell an angry, bitter, slightly petty man whose wife left him for a violinist that he's bad at the violin. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. But I think it was the same with uh, David Bowie in the saxophone. That yes. the, you know, the rest of the yeah. musicians would all be wincing as soon as he got the saxophone out. It's like, oh no, Dave, put it away. Yeah. Captain Reed um, as well. Okay, before we move on, before we move on, can I just say I really like this one? Infotainment scan. Me too, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. yeah, I think it's, I think really it's really one of my favourites of the 90s. It's, it's not... catchy. Yeah. It's definitely yeah. catchy throughout, yeah? I mean... Yeah, it's poppy full. It, it's a peak for the 90s, along with Extricate and Levitate for me. I think for me, what was interesting when I was listening to this is a lot of bands that came through the 80s, particularly post-punk stuff, like I was thinking of Big Audio Dynamite as an example. Um, early night, a lot of them came out into the nineties. Saw what was around them, tried to do something, and it was fucking awful. And they didn't get it. Yeah, they sort of turned up and went, "Oh, I can do this." No, you, you really, really can't. Whereas the fall, whether you like them or not, they came through the eighties and into the nineties with the same level of dignity and sound and whatnot. With panache. Yeah, yeah. And there were people who got into them during the 90s based on their 90s sound. Yeah. I, I got into them because of what they were doing in the 90s. I found the stuff they were doing in the 80s later. So it, it was good enough. You okay. know, Code Selfish was good enough to hook me in. Even if I, I'd probably say I prefer the 80s form. Um, I just, before we move on, I just want to talk about I'm Going to Spain because I think it's really amazing. Like, you know, he's a non-singer, right? So there's no technicality. Um, there's no like melody basically he can he can just about like keep a melody but I'm going to be really pretentious here and what I think it does is that because you're you're when you listen to him you're not thinking about technicality or or tunefulness or even being in tune what it does is it allows like the feeling to come through because the focus you can just focus on the words and the emotion you're not ever thinking about like (laughs) a tune because he can't do it. But I think it does a really amazing thing. It sounds like a man making up a song as he goes along in the shower, doesn't it? I'm going to Spain. Yeah, but but that does a thing. It's really poignant. There's three covers on this album, isn't there? But also I'd say that League of Bald-Headed Man, it's just, it's Misty Mountain Hot by Led Zeppelin. Has anyone noticed that? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so he does that kind of lifting and borrowing quite a lot, and he does that um, yeah. even more in the 90s, I'd say. But they so get away with that. They get away with it because because Marquis Smith is such a linchpin, and he totally... Um, you, you can't hear a record with Marquis Smith on it and not know it's Marquis Smith. There's just no way you can. So because he is that constant, even though he's so chaotic, he's an absolute constant throughout, from the beginning of the fall to the end, and it gives the musicians freedom to do whatever they want. They can do anything and even steal. So I just think it's kind of okay. fascinating. I'm, I'm fascinated by the fall. Um, so we're going to move on to, um, <laughs> it's stuck in my head now. I wrote down MCR and I made a joke about my chemical romance and I was just about to say it again. Middle-class revolt. Well, what it was, was because I was pointing out to you and that, you know, I think some people tend to overthink the fall and try to look for clues and messages in the songs. And one of the things with middle-class revolt was the initials MCR which is often an abbreviation of Manchester. Manchester, yeah. And this was seen as his album about Manchester because you've got lots of those tracks with lyrics like, you know, I'm city born and bred, too many car fumes in my head and stuff like that. It feels very much about being from Manchester, this album. But now I have My Chemical Romance stuck in my <laughs> head. So we're moving, on to, we're moving on to 1994's My Chemical Romance. Um, it's a bit of a pop album, right? I mean, there's electronica, there's tribal drums going through that. There's a lot of things going on, but... He's carrying on the early 90s pop. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the tribal drums because at this point, Carl's back in the band. So you've got two drummers again for the first time for, for a while. But you've also got Dave Bush doing the electronic stuff. So there's kind of electronic rhythms and two drummers. I don't know what other bands did that. It's just... First time since uh, 1985, I think, with Carl Burns. Yeah, yeah. Which is the biggest lineup so far? Which which album had the well, most? most? Which four lineup was the biggest lineup? That's a good question. Probably Bricks area because you'd have had two guitarists then. Um, don't know. Okay, um, so we were talking about how he steals and they steal from other bands and put it, make put their own stamp on it. I was listening to Hey Student, 
And I suddenly went, oh, this is where Half Man, Half Biscuit got uh, tuned to a Joy Division oven glove from. Because it, <laughs> it literally lifted. And I, I got had the two going on in my head at the time. And then as I was listening to the song, I thought, oh, is this one of those songs that somebody does um, slagging off or criticizing certain types of people? And then they adopt as their own missing what it was about in the first place. Uh, I'm thinking uh, Born Slippy as an example, you know, or, or Tub Thumping by uh, Chumba Wumba, songs criticizing groups who then go, oh, there's a catchy bit about me. Uh, and then they, they start singing along. Do you think Hey Student was the Falls version? He'd already done um, Hey Fascist, hadn't he? Yeah. Yeah, so hey, this, this tune was apparently based on an earlier fall tune called Hey Fascist, which wasn't on any albums. And I don't think, I don't think I've ever heard that but it is sort of based on an old fortune. I'd like to think that um, students taking on Hey Student about them is probably slightly better uh, when you look back on the history of a band as a bunch of fascists uh, going, eh, hey, Marky Smith wrote a song about us. <laughs> Who makes the Nazis? <laughs> I'm just thinking with this, this being 1994, it was round about the same time as Paul Calf came out and he was always ranting about students. So I wonder if that was an influence on him. Was it on the telly? It was on yeah. the telly at the time, so yes. yeah, it was probably watching pop yeah. Calf. Yeah, probably. Oh, so so which album is the song about going for gold? Uh, <laughs> classic early <laughs> quiz show on. Um, so this was wait, this was ninety four, yeah. right? Yeah. This, so this was also the same year that he got into the top, the festive top fifty again with Inspiral Carpets. Mm, yeah, I want you. Yeah, yeah, I want you. So th that that was a. So that was around about. Obviously, he was being accepted, and or he was willing to be accepted. The only, the only good by thing, bands. The only good thing in Spiral Carpets ever did, I would say. Oh, I disagree with that. Oh, I'm not a fan. Not a fan. Oh, I love it. Can of worms here. <laughs> no, go ahead. Go ahead. Open a can of worms. <laughs> Although we can't, we haven't got time to fit in an entire in Spiral Carpets yeah. episode right now. But you can come back and talk about it another time. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so we've, we've got to Middle Class Revolt. It's a pop album. We're, we're moving into the mid-90s. Um, they have a now a 90s sound. Um, you can't even describe them as, as punk or post-punk anymore. They are the fall in the 90s. Um, we're going to probably use this as a perfect time to wrap up this episode and the same cast, group, uh, bunch of people. Uh, Zoe and Joe, basically, will be back <laughs> in the next episode where we will continue um, looking at the fall through the 90s. Um, it, hopefully you won't notice there were any technical issues. There seems to be technical issues all the time, but yeah, I think we're getting there. Uh, Nick, thank you very much. Cheers. Joe, thank you very much. Thank you. Zoe, thank you very much. Thank you. And we will see everybody next time. Bye-bye. A massive thank you to our guests for episode 17, or the full part 3, as we've confusingly taken to calling it. They were Zoe Von Hess, who joined us from Hong Kong, and Joe Mitchell, all the way from the glorious north of England. And, as always, thank you to my incredulous co-host Ewan for chairing the chat and wrestling with the resulting files. And to Jonathan Fisher for writing our theme tune. Links to his other work and the artist responsible for other incidental music can be found in the notes for the show. We'll be back soon with part four of The Fall, and until then, I'm Nick Hilditch, and how dare you assume I want to parley view with you, you Gretchen Franklin nosy matron thing. <laughs>